good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Keynesian economics and the stimulus bill that we're expecting to see uh, in Congress early next year. But before we get to the, the meat of the program, let me just make a couple quick housekeeping notes. Uh, first of all, I'd like to bring everybody's attention to the Cato Handbook on Policy. Uh, hopefully everyone already has a copy. Um, if you don't, well, we're actually coming out with a new edition uh, in early January. So look for that. We'll actually be distributing them to all congressional offices sometime in January. It's going to be uh, just like previous editions, full of all sorts of ideas for members of Congress to help them uh, limit the, the size of government and uh, expand freedom. Um, so it should be uh, an excellent publication once again. Also, just want to point out that uh, after watching today's program, if you're uh, just absolutely enthralled with what you learned and want to watch it again, uh, it is available as are all of our archived events in video format on our website, cato.org. So uh, please do check that out. Um, also, all of our Cato publications are available at cato.org. So papers, uh, uh, our blog, uh, you name it, it's all there for uh, your consumption. With that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, introduce our first speaker for today. Our first speaker is Dan Mitchell. He is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He focuses primarily on tax reform and supply-side tax policy. Uh, he's a strong advocate of the flat tax and of international tax competition. He's also, uh, as you will soon learn, a, a very sharp critic of Keynesian economic policy. Um, and he's actually published, or, or I'm sorry, filmed a number of videos that are available on our website and on our blog, uh, critical of Keynesian economic policy. I encourage you to check them out. Uh, prior to joining Cato, he served at the uh, Heritage Foundation as a senior fellow. He also worked as an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, Dan holds a bachelor's and master's degree in economics from the University of Georgia, and he holds a Ph.D. in economics from George Mason University. Turn things over to Dan Mitchell. Well, thank you, Brandon. Uh, Steve Benton and I were talking as we were waiting for the program to start, and it really is deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say. Uh, if you go back to the 1970s, this is exactly the type of debate we were having. And uh, after all the Keynesian experimentation that went on and how dismal the economy was in the 1970s, we thought that we had finally put a stake in the heart of the notion that bigger government uh, was good for the economy. Unfortunately, no victories in Washington are permanent, and we are now back in the same place where we have politicians deciding that big government is good. Now, of course, they like big government because that's one of the ways you buy votes in Washington is you increase spending and the constituencies and interest groups reward you with votes and campaign contributions. Uh, but we're not going to focus on the mo motives of politicians here. Instead, we're going to be talking about does Keynesian economics work from a fiscal policy perspective. And as you can tell from the title of my PowerPoint presentation, I don't think it does. And I'll just go ahead and jump right into this and walk through a number of slides that first discuss the theory uh, and then discuss the evidence. Now, the theory of Keynesian economics is pretty straightforward. And at some superficial level, it makes sense. There's not enough money being spent. So therefore, we're going to have the government inject money into the economy, and that's going to boost what Keynesians call aggregate demand. 
in simple terms for you and me. It just means more people will be out there with money in their pockets. They're going to buy things. And then, of course, the stores that are selling things will have reason to hire more people. And somehow we'll just jumpstart the economy. We'll prime the pump, as the Keynesians say, and, uh, and we'll have wonderful economic results. It sounds good. But w- and by the way, here's uh, our uh, great friend John Maynard Keynes and his book, that really publicized and, and made a profound impact on the economics profession. Uh, but what about Keynesianism? Does it really make sense? Well, let's walk through that theory here for a second. It starts with the notion that government is going to give money to people, usually consumers, you know, but I suppose you could, you could do it any number of ways. There's a lot of talk about infrastructure spending. But the notion is somehow to take money and put it in the pockets of people. And what do those people do with it? They go out and they spend it. My ex-wife did a lot of that. Uh, Maybe that's why I don't like Keynesianism. Uh, But that's the basic theory. Give money to consumers, they spend it. And as we talked about earlier, that primes the pump, it's injecting money. Whatever little buzzwords from Keynesian economics you want to use, this is how the theory is supposed to work. But there's a tiny little problem with Keynesian economics. Where does the government get the money? They get it out of the economy. Any money that the government is going to put in your left pocket is money that they have to first borrow out of your right pocket. Now, they could, just as an aside, they could go ahead and just monetize the debt. They can print money to finance uh, this new spending. But presumably, people who are familiar with Argentina and Zimbabwe and countries like that. We sort of know that inflation isn't a good idea, and simply printing money to finance spending. Uh, even the Keynesians, I think, get pretty squeamish about that. Of course, given what the Federal Reserve is doing now, maybe that's also an issue we'll have to discuss at a future forum. But let's assume that we're dealing with traditional Keynesians, uh, not, not the Argentinian-style Keynesians. Government borrows out of your left pocket, gives it to consumers who then spend it, but it's just a big circular flow. The way that national income is spent may be redistributed by Keynesian economics, but you're not increasing national income. The pie may be sliced differently, but it's not any bigger. Now, some Keynesians say, wait, but hold on a second. Isn't there a problem that sometimes if you just rely on the private sector... People may just put money in banks, and the real key to Keynesian economics is we need more consumer spending, and therefore we can't trust that banks, that consumer people will do the right thing. Well, the only problem is is that if people do not uh, consume money and they instead save it, what happens to it? It then goes back into the economy because what do banks do? Banks don't have some giant mattress someplace where they stuff all the money. Any money that goes into the banking system winds up then going back into the economy. Now, the really clever Keynesians will then say, well, hold on a second. If you have a weak economy, and certainly this would be appropriate for today, there's not much borrowing and lending. Who wants to borrow money? Or even if you want to borrow money, maybe you can't uh, borrow money. Why are banks going to lend money? After all, there aren't that many profitable opportunities out there. So maybe, indeed, there's something to the Keynesian theory that everything grinds to a halt. But again, the whole key to understanding Keynesian economics is you have to look at both sides of the equation. 
Don't just look at the side of the equation where government gives money to consumers. Look at the other side of the equation, which is where government borrows the money out of the economy in the first place. The same thing is true for this notion that only government can jumpstart consumer spending. Uh, The Keynesians say we can't rely on the private sector because money is just set aside and it's not injected into the economic stream. But what happens when there's a very weak economy? Consumers want to increase their saving anyhow, or at least least, uh, pay down debt. And if you look at some of the experiences we've had with, say, the Bush rebates from 2001 to 2008, you're not increasing actual economic activity, you're just shifting uh, where it takes place. Now let's shift from the theory to the real world evidence, because I think logic is one thing, but most people ultimately say, show me what's happening in the real world whenever these policies are tried. There have been many Keynesian episodes in uh, our history, most prominently in the 1930s under Hoover and Roosevelt, but then on a more modest level, we've had Keynesian policies under Gerald Ford, under the current president, and then probably the most relevant example, especially in today's uh, political climate, we should look at Japan in the 1990s, because Japan may as well have renamed itself Keynesland. Uh, not only did they have a lot of deficit spending done explicitly under the notion that this would be stimulus, but they also really focused on infrastructure. And the, our, our next president says we're going to have a big Keynesian package focusing on infrastructure, and so I think Japan is a very important country to look at. But let's go through some of these periods of real-world evidence. First, here are the Bobsy twins of big government, Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt. And what do we know about them? Well, we know that they basically had the same policies, except Roosevelt was a lot better on trade than, than, uh, than Hoover. But they both increased tax rates dramatically. Uh, Hoover increased the top tax rate from 25 to 63 percent. I mean, he made, uh, he made uh, Bill Clinton and George Herbert Walker Bush look like uh, free market conservatives. Roosevelt then increased the top tax rate further to 79 percent. They both increased government intervention. They both thought government should interfere with private markets and somehow try to hold wages artificially high. That worked really well. But most importantly, from the perspective of Keynesian economics, Hoover and Roosevelt both dramatically increased government spending, and they increased government spending financed by debt, which is exactly what Keynesian theory suggests. Well, how did this work? Well, first, let's look at Herbert Hoover. Government spending throughout the 1920s was relatively constant. Hoover takes office. Government spending explodes. Uh, 47%, I think, was my uh, simple calculation, uh, looking at the numbers for 29 to 33. Uh, That's a a pretty big increase, uh, especially off a very low baseline. Uh, How did that work? Well, GDP went down. Unemployment rate went up. So we had a pure Keynesian experiment. And it was all financed by debt. When Hoover took office, we had a budget surplus. When he left office, we had a deficit of 4.5% of GDP. He did pure Keynesianism. The economy did not respond positively. Uh, Let's go ahead and look at Roosevelt. So Hoover comes in, he raises spending. And Roosevelt comes in, he raises spending even further. How did this work? Well, it wasn't until 1941 that GDP finally exceeded the 1929 level. I meant to put the 1940 number in, but didn't somehow get around to it. 1940 GDP was still lower than the 1929 level. So throughout the entire 1930s, 
of all the big government debt finance government spending under Hoover and Roosevelt, still by 1940, GDP was smaller than it was in 1929. It was only when we got to World War II uh, in 1941 that GDP wound up being higher than it was in 1929. Now, I don't know what other people define as success, but certainly if your GDP 11 years later after nothing but deficit spending after deficit spending and Keynesian policy uh, to, the, to the fifth power and you still have smaller GDP, that's not economic success. And it's kind of a mystery to me why everyone appropriately views Hoover as a failure as a president and yet somehow they think that Roosevelt got us out of the Depression when he followed the same policies as Hoover and the economy remained mired in the dumps. All throughout the 1930s, unemployment rate averaged more than 17%. That is not success. And here are just a few of the details. Interestingly, Roosevelt's Treasury Secretary in 1939 admitted to the Ways and Means Committee that I say after eight years of this administration, we have just as much unemployment as when we started and an enormous debt to boot. That is the legacy of Keynesian economics. The economy did not work. Lots of government spending, lots of government debt, but no positive results for the American people. Uh, let's look at a few other recent episodes. Gerald Ford did tax rebates in the 1970s. The economy didn't benefit, but why would it? Not all tax cuts are created equal. If all you're doing is giving people a $200 check or a $300 check, why is that going to increase their incentives to work, save, and invest? It's not going to. If you want to cut taxes in ways that help the economy, you have to lower marginal tax rates on productive behavior. Simply giving someone a check from the government and calling it a tax rebate isn't going to help the economy. I know Steve's going to talk more about that. We had, we had the same thing, by the way, with Bush's rebates in 2001 and 2008. Why didn't they work? They didn't work because all they did was take money out of the economy's right pocket and put it in the economy's left pocket, but nobody had an incentive to earn more national income. And if there's one thing that people remember from this presentation, it should be that what is economic growth? Economic growth isn't more consumer spending compared to investment spending. Economic growth is an increase in national income, not how it's sliced. You want people to be working more, saving more, investing more, not simply redistributing how that happens. And unfortunately, the whole Keynesian theory seems to be focused on redistributing the existing pie rather than making the pie grow bigger. And by the way, if you look at the 2003 tax rate reductions, were actually, which actually were a supply-side tax cut, that actually did give us some positive effects on the economy. But for the most part, under this current administration, uh, the Bush administration, we had basically Keynesian policy in terms of tax rebates and increases in government spending. This is what happened to government spending uh, during the Bush years. Just like with Hoover and Roosevelt, big increases in government spending – financed by debt, and yet why hasn't this Keynesian policy worked? It hasn't worked because it doesn't matter whether you have an R after your name or a D after your name. If you follow Keynesian policy and increase the burden of government spending, you're not going to help the economy grow faster. Now let's look at the experience in Japan, uh, because this really, this is eerie at how similar Japan is to us. They got into trouble because they had a big bubble, largely a real estate bubble as well. Uh, their bubble burst, their economy went down, and by the way, it's not a topic for today, but how they mishandled their approach to the bubble 
is very similar to the way we're mishandling approaches with bailouts today. Uh, but what Japan did in the 1990s to try to help their economy is they had one Keynesian stimulus program after another, and they focused a lot on infrastructure. I mean, I'm surprised the whole, that all the Japanese islands aren't covered in concrete now, but it was a pure Keynesian experiment. But what happened? There was no positive effect on the economy. Here's a headline from 1992. Here's a headline from 1998. Again, you know, all throughout, but uh, I think Amity Schles in a piece in the Washington Post said that they had 11 sp different Keynesian stimulus programs in the 1990s. So those were just a couple of them. What were the results? Well, government debt as a share of GDP in the 1990s more than doubled. And by the way, since their economy is still relatively weak, it's gone up so much that their debt as a share of GDP is higher even than Italy. I don't mean to pick on the Italians, but they're infamous in fiscal policy circles uh, on these measures. Uh, so Japan, lots of debt. What about the economy? Well, here's Japan's Nikkei index from 1988 to 2000. Now, let's be fair. If you look at 2000, I mean, at 1990, that was a bubble. That was an unsustainably high level of our stock market index. So the bubble burst. But then look at the trend line all throughout the 1990s during this period when Japan was doing one Keynesian fiscal policy so-called stimulus after another. It did not help the economy at all. So what's the conclusion to all this? There is no free lunch. What is Keynesian economics? Keynesian economics is basically the fiscal equivalent of a perpetual motion machine. I mean, the patent office has to deal with these cranks that send in you know, their patent for a machine that creates more energy than it uses, and that's supposed to be the, the magic elixir. Well, of course, it doesn't exist, at least uh, given our current technology, and Keynesian economics doesn't work considering the way the economy operates as well. More spending is not the key to economic growth. And by the way, it's not just more spending isn't the key. Poorly designed tax cuts also don't help the economy. So if people are talking about tax rebates and tax holidays, I mean, if the government sends me a check, I'll cash it. But if the government sends me a check, I don't have any incentive to work more, save more, and invest more. And again, remember, economic growth is an increase in national income. And if I don't have any incentive to work more or save more or invest more, how is national income going to increase? It's not going to. So what is the answer then? Not really part of our discussion today, but I'll simply note that the only good short-run policy is good long-run policy. So if policymakers want to focus on lowering marginal tax rates, engaging in fundamental tax reform, reducing the burden of government spending, cutting red tape, uh, opening up trade, there are lots of positive things that you can do to help an economy grow faster, but they also happen to be the things that you want to do, whether your economy is growing at 5% a year or contracting at 2% a year. And then one final comment. When people say it's government's job to fix a broken economy, maybe we should actually stop for a second and say, how did the economy get broken? And when we look at our current mess right now, especially in financial markets and the housing bubble, and you look at the easy money policy by the Federal Reserve, you look at the corrupt system of subsidies from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, and you look at all the other government policies that in effect created the bubble, maybe instead of rewarding an arsonist with more gasoline and matches, we should actually take away the gasoline and matches. Government causes problems. It doesn't solve them. Thank you.
Well, obviously, our first speaker was was very critical of Keynesian economic policy, and uh, our second speaker will be very critical of Keynesian economic policy once again. Uh, Stephen Enton is the president and executive director of the Institute for Research on the Economics of Taxation, which is a pro-free market group here in Washington. Uh, prior to uh, his stint at IRET, he was uh, actually uh, the deputy assistant secretary for economic policy at the Department of Treasury during the Reagan administration. And prior to that, he was a staff economist at the Joint Economic Committee here on Capitol Hill. Uh, Mr. Etten is a graduate of Dartmouth, and he also did his uh, graduate work in economics at the University of Chicago. Mr. Etten, thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I have some charts to go through. There will be a short quiz at the end of the period, so take notes. I'm going through some charts many of you have seen in your undergraduate economics courses because I want you to know that I know what the charts say. I used to teach this stuff, and I want you to know that I'm not missing the point on Keynesian economics. Uh, the more you understand about it, the less you're likely to uh, believe in it. The traditional point in Keynesian economics is that sometimes the economy is not working at full employment, and we need to do something to boost aggregate demand to get it up to full employment, but not go so far as that we start raising prices too strongly. Well, how do you move aggregate demand? How do you get people to spend more, to buy more of what could be produced? The notion is that the government could do the spending, and that's great because it all gets spent right away, and then it reverberates. I give you a dollar because I bought something from you. You have to save some, pay taxes. You turn around and spend 50 cents. The person you give the 50 cents to spends 25 cents and on and on in ripple effects that sort of give you a two-for-one boost. Or we could cut taxes. We could give someone out there some money to spend. But with tax cuts, part of it might get saved first. They're not as powerful as government spending. You can see why uh, Keynesian economics is so popular uh, with national governments. It tells them that their spending is better than their constituents' spending, so why not take their money and spend it for them? Um, the other way you can probably uh, increase aggregate demand is have the Federal Reserve drive interest rates down, and people will borrow and consume and they'll borrow and invest. So you have these three ways of boosting aggregate demand. The trouble is that two of the three don't work, and the third one's poison. Uh, Milton Friedman asked a good question <clears throat> back in the 1970s. I think it was in Newsweek magazine when he had dueling columns with Paul Samuelson on alternate weeks. He said, if the government is spending $500 billion and it cuts taxes to $450 billion, where does the $50 billion difference come from? The tooth fairy? No. Uh, you have to either uh, increase federal borrowing from the public to cover the deficit, in which case uh, you are giving money out with one hand and taking it back in with the other, uh, or you have to cut some other spending or you have to increase some other tax. Something has to be done because the Treasury doesn't kite checks. Uh, he also had a permanent income hypothesis, which suggested that a temporary tax cut wouldn't raise your expectation of your ability to consume on a permanent basis, and you might only spend something amounting to the interest on the, uh, uh, on the tax cut. But, but that's a different, uh, a different uh, uh, way of approaching that question. The more important one, he said, in the 1970s was that the Treasury doesn't kite checks. Now, there is a third possibility. Well, if, if it, what he said there is true, then that curve doesn't shift. It simply sits there. The third possibility is that the government could sell the bonds into the market and the Federal Reserve could come in and buy an equal number of bonds and basically fund the deficit with new money. 
And Friedman's point there was you've had a change in monetary policy. That wasn't the fiscal policy by itself. And it turned out that the major Keynesian computer models that you saw in all the big consulting firms always assumed that the Federal Reserve would step in and buy the additional debt so that interest rates wouldn't go up from the additional borrowing. So it was always money-driven. It never really worked from the uh, uh, fiscal policy side uh, itself. Now, this last rebate, uh, which everyone assumed would be spent, uh, was apparently not spent. We had the Ford rebate, which failed. It was such a flop that when President Carter proposed another one a year later, uh, the Senate Finance Committee laughed it out of committee. They did let him get it to the floor where it was defeated, but nobody uh, thought it was going to work, and and it was not uh, adopted. Uh, Then we had the first Bush uh, rebate, in effect, and then the second one. This is the second one. You can see the big jump in disposable income and uh, nothing much happening with consumption spending, uh, and then the recession hit and everything got worse. So it's, uh, this chart uh, was brought to my attention by John Taylor, who had an article recently in the Wall Street Journal uh, with it. Uh, but uh, he talked about how these temporary tax cuts never work, uh, as if Friedman's permanent income hypothesis were the only thing governing, not the, kite, the check-kiting problem at the Treasury. Uh, in fact, even if you make the sort of tax cut that is a rebate permanent and give, you, uh, give everyone out the same $600 check uh, every year, year in, year out, Uh, If it's just a handout and it's unrelated to working longer or saving more or adding more capital or hiring more people or producing more output, it's still not going to work. You not only have to have a permanent tax cut, it has to be of the right type. Well, what happens if you do use the money supply to try to jumpstart things? Not good. As you pump up the money supply, you do get an increase in aggregate demand. The line will move up. But as prices rise, people begin to realize it, and they demand higher wages, so uh, your cost curve begins to move up, and you just go up at, at whatever capacity you already have, and all you get is price increases over and over and over again. You don't get any permanent increase in real output by printing money. In fact, it's worse than that, because in the old days, in the 70s, when I first started in this town, we didn't have indexing of the income tax brackets, and the cost of living allowances would push you into higher and higher tax rates, so the Demand for wages was rising even faster than prices to try to pay the extra tax. Labor became more expensive. We didn't index and still don't index the depreciation write-off, so capital became more expensive. We got less labor, less capital, and less output. Inflation was actually making growth worse, not better, let alone being neutral. Now, this leaves aside the question of whether the Federal Reserve can even lower interest rates in any effective way. Uh, We've seen them drive short-term interest rates down, but long-term interest rates that are used to finance capital expansion depend on the return to the capital. If something happens, a technological advance or a cut in the tax rate on capital make investment more profitable, firms are willing to pay a higher interest rate and have a higher dividend and do all kinds of things to attract the money to expand with. And the interest rates in the long market reflect the profitability of capital, not what the Fed's doing. And we now have a situation where the Fed has driven short-term interest rates down to virtually nothing. What do you think this does to a retiree who has savings and is trying to live on the interest? Well, uh, their stocks fall. So if they have to sell their stocks, they suffer a loss. Earnings on risk-free treasury bills and uh, insured bank deposits have fallen from about 3.5% a few years ago to about 0.035%. 
and where people were getting uh, uh, on $100,000 in saving, they were getting $3,500 a year to spend. They are now lucky to get $35 a year. Even a long-term treasury bond, a 10-year bond, is paying under 2.5%. At 3% inflation, notice this, think about it. At 3% inflation, clothing, canned goods, paper towels, and toilet paper are better investments than U.S. Treasury debt. It's simple arithmetic. Well, what do taxes really do for us, and how can we change them to get us some growth? This is a picture of an excise tax. You've all seen it in your undergraduate economics courses. This could be a cigarette tax or a gasoline tax, anything you want to talk about. And uh, when you impose the, uh, excuse me, when you impose the tax, uh, the price is driven up to the consumer. What the producer or seller gets, it's driven down. The rectangle is the tax revenue, and the triangle is sheer waste. You've got resources here that are not used in production. The quantity of output falls, uh, and you have your deadweight loss plus your tax revenue. As you start raising the rate, you get more revenue, and for a while, when the rates are low, you can raise rates by raising revenue, but eventually the quantity falls so much on the tax base that you begin getting a shrinkage in revenue, uh, and you've got to be very careful about not going too far. Now, the value of a dollar's worth of government spending had better be equal to two things, the dollar of tax that they had to raise to pay for it plus the loss to the economy. So something you buy out of government had better be worth a bit more than it appears to cost you on the federal budget or you're doing the country some damage. We often hear that this curve, which reflects the rising tax revenues from rising rates followed by the lower tax revenues from rising rates, that the optimal point is the revenue-maximizing rate. It isn't. Because of the damage to the economy, you'd better stop back here with your federal spending and your, op and your, your uh, tax rate on, on uh, productive activity, or you're doing more damage from the loss in the economy than you're adding from the government spending stream. That bridge you want to put over that river had better not only meet a good cost-benefit test, uh, it had better do better than that. And, of course, we don't bother with almost any kind of cost-benefit test in government, so we uh, really don't know what anything is worth. Now, a tax on cigarettes or gasoline is often drawn the way I've shown you, but uh, you can apply this to the labor market with a supply and a demand curve, and uh, you can apply it to the capital uh, market with a supply and a demand curve. And here we are. Um, the labor supply curve is fairly steep, so most of the tax is eaten by labor. But on the capital side, capital is extremely sensitive to tax. You get a big drop in the quantity, and when you do that, you depress productivity and you depress wages and you have a drop in the demand for labor. Wages go down and employment goes down. Taxes on capital hurt labor more than they hurt capital. You've got to understand that. And it's been cyclical behavior in investment that has generally triggered in, uh, recessions and booms. It's not consumption so much because that's fairly steady. When you start messing with taxes on capital, you run into trouble. And not many people realize it, but Japan's bust started with a major tax increase on capital in Japan. It deflated land values, it crushed investment in the stock market, and that bankrupted their banks because they were heavily invested in the market, more so than ours, and that is what gave them their banking problem. They still think they had a banking problem. They have never corrected their original tax blunders. If you want growth, lower the tax wedges on capital, particularly, and on labor too, and you get the aggregate supply curve expanding, moving outward for you, and you find that this is non-inflationary, 
because as the output expands and there's more goods chasing the money supply, prices actually are lower than otherwise, and you get real capacity expansion uh, and all the good things that come with it. Now, what kinds of tax changes do that? Not the rebates. That's offset by government borrowing. These are things that make it more profitable to add more machinery. Cut the corporate tax rate, accelerate depreciation, cut the marginal tax rates on the small business people, uh, take away some of the double taxation of corporate income by having lower tax rates on dividends and capital gains if you can't cut the corporate rate for political reasons. But you've got to get over these political hurdles because the stuff that does good is the stuff that's least popular here on the Hill. Not only is it permanent, but they give it to the, quote, wrong people. Do these things matter? Well, they do matter. Dan's mentioned that the initial Bush tax cut in 2001 was mostly like a rebate. It had marginal rate cuts, but they were phased in over many, many years. And all you got up front was that little jiggling of the 15% bracket where part of it went down to 10. This was not a cut at the margin on incremental effort by much of anyone. Do you know how much income is earned by people whose incomes stop no higher than the 10% tax bracket? Less than 2% of the national output. Even if they doubled their effort, you wouldn't get all that much. This is not where you need to cut the rates. Well, we had the tax cut in 2001. Investment in structures, oops, sorry. Investment in structures, we'll get to the games later. Investment in structures and in equipment had been falling. Well, after everybody did all their investment in IT in 1999 to avoid the Y2K collapse of the computer system, nobody was investing in IT in 2000. And uh, we uh, had, had nothing in the uh, initial 2000 bill that was going to promote investment in structures or in, or in equipment. So after the 2000 cut, uh, investment continued to decline. In 2002, we had that 30% uh, expensing provision in one of the little tax bills that went through. It only applied to equipment, and equipment spending uh, stopped falling, uh, but didn't get very strong. And then in 2003, we did what we should have done in 2001. We brought all the rate cuts that hadn't happened yet forward in all of the brackets. And they added the 15% cap on dividends and capital gains, and they boosted the expensing provision temporarily for one year to 50%. Equipment spending took off, and structure spending stopped falling. And that's when we had the recovery. That ended the jobless recovery of those two years at the beginning and got us moving again. So it's the right kind of tax cut, and if they're permanent. Now, these were only partially permanent. They had that 10-year window because of the Senate's very silly rule on the budget where you can't go out beyond 10 years. Uh, and they haven't been renewed, and we're getting close to the time when these are going to expire and all the rates are going to pop back up. Furthermore, when you do cut taxes on capital, it takes about five years for all the investment to get done. You've built up your higher capital stock. When you, once you've done that, things sort of level off again. And by 2008, we were going to be having an end to that boom in investment triggered in 2003. We needed another shot in the arm if we were going to continue to grow as we did in the mid-2000s, and we didn't get it. In fact, now we're talking about raising taxes on capital. So we were going to be weak anyway, and then when the housing fiasco fell apart, we were in a weak economy rather than a strong economy to start with, and uh, everything fell to pieces. I'm sure we've all played shoots and ladders. Apologies to Milton Bradley. But you start at the bottom, and you, you spin the little wheel, and you go up the path at a fairly steady rate, unless you hit one of the shoots or one of the ladders. Now, if you hit the ladder, you get to jump up a couple of levels. Now, what would be a ladder in our economy? If you cut taxes on capital formation and uh, additional labor, 
uh, you can get an increase in labor force participation and a big jump in the capital stock over a couple of years. That gives you a boost, and you're rising faster than normal. When it's completed, you go back to your usual pace. So every time you want another big boost, you're going to have to have another tax cut, and it has to be a permanent one, because if it's temporary, you don't climb the ladder because you know you're going to have to climb right back down. Now, what happens when you hit a chute? You're going along at a pace, and you hit the chute, and you slide down a level, or three, or four, or five. Well, it means that people are dropping out of the labor force, and some of the capital that's wearing out isn't being replaced, because it's no longer profitable to hold it and own it and operate it, because the tax on it went up. You have to reduce the capital stock, as I showed you in an earlier graph, until the rate of return goes up high enough to pay the tax. And that's what happens with the tax increase. So you have to have a permanent tax cut in order to have growth. It has to be of the right type. And uh, if you think it's going to be something you do once uh, and then forget about it, you're wrong because after several years, about five years or so, you have to have another shot in the arm or it won't work. Can the Federal Reserve bail us out? Uh, we tried that in the mid-'70s and got a huge amount of inflation, very strong increase in interest rates, negative real interest rates, by the way, but we ran into trouble in the housing market because the SNLs couldn't pay those rates, and we had a lot of trouble. The stock market fell by 45%. We had uh, a couple of recessions that were fairly severe. Not a good thing to do. After the uh, recovery in 1981, after the first Reagan tax cut, and after Paul Volcker broke the back of inflation, uh, the Federal Reserve generally was fairly well-behaved. It didn't oscillate the money supply too much. It didn't play with interest rates too much. We generally had a downtrend in monetary volatility and interest rates and inflation right through the mid-'90s. And with low inflation and people coming to expect good behavior by the Federal Reserve, we had people thinking that risk was pretty low in the economy and people were pretty happy to save and invest and uh, grow the economy. Well, uh, the Fed fell off the wagon at the end of the 1990s. You had the Asian currency crisis, you had long-term capital hedge fund collapse, then you had the fear over Y2K that somehow all the ATM machines would stop working and the banks wouldn't be able to clear checks and the Fed flooded their tills with bank reserves and that was uh, this blip. And then it had to take it out. Uh, so you had the Asian crisis and the things related to that here, then you had, well, this is very volatile. And this meant that the Fed had to walk a tightrope. If you put it in and then it's not needed, you have to take it out. You can't overshoot. And if you overshoot, you're going to make the economy worse and interest rates are going to start doing funny things. When the 2001 recession did come in and the Federal Reserve tried to prime the pump, it was pushing on a string. As Dan mentioned, no one was borrowing because by this time the rate of return on capital had sunk to where no one wanted to borrow. And we didn't get any, any kick to that in the 2001 tax cut. So the Fed's there pushing money out, pushing on a string, and we get the housing bubble. Short-term interest rates are down. Adjustable rate mortgages take advantage of the short-term rates to fund a long-term housing situation. And, of course, it came a cropper. The Fed continued to pump money out um, and kept interest rates too low too long. Now, finally, in 2003, we had a sort of tax cut that meant there was someone on the other end of the string reeling in the money and putting in plant and equipment. But as that began to fade, as that was completed, the Fed was still pushing on the string, and then we had the commodity bubble. And the Fed was paying no attention to the falling dollar, which was indicating too much liquidity. So uh, we got into trouble. And now what's the Fed doing? The Fed is again introducing a lot of liquidity. Uh, I ran out of room here. Can you see the line? 
whereas swings in the past were uh, on the order of occasionally a couple of quarters of 35% annual change in the uh, monetary base, we're now at something over 700%. And the Fed's balance sheet has ballooned enormously. I would suggest to you that the Fed is off the chart and in uncharted territory. And when they have to take this money out before it causes inflation, I don't know how much they're going to have to take out. Neither do they, and I'm not sure they're not going to overshoot big time. You people here who are in charge of fiscal policy here on Capitol Hill, you cannot sit there for five years at a time not understanding what tax cuts do and don't do, pass one good bill that works, and then assume you've done your work for the rest of your, your tenure here in Congress. You have to go back and revisit the economy and the tax system. You have to keep reining in government spending. You have to keep making more and more room for the right kinds of tax changes and tax reform if you want good growth. And if you just sit on your laurels and let the Fed bail you out and hope you can rake in the money generated by growth created by the Federal Reserve, you are going to have one heck of a mess. I think we have that today. Uh, Welcome to the end of Economics uh, 101 uh, for the modern world. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Uh, We do have time for some questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand. Please speak up loudly. And uh, try to keep it relatively short, if you don't mind. Uh, yes, sir. Yes. Uh, I'm Sal Lazar with the uh, Library of Congress Congressional Research Service. Um, I hope you don't think this is a criticism, because I agree with a lot of what you're saying. The philosophical underpinnings and the problem with policy, federal policy, fiscal policy, historically, <coughs> currently, and then prospectively, what they're about to do. A lot of problems. However, I mean, if you're, Dr. Ensign, if you're teaching macroeconomics, I suspect, I'm wondering whether this is a little misleading in the sense that, and I'm not an expert on Keynes, but when you're teaching macroeconomics, we're taught that there are components of aggregate demand. And the idea is that in a cyclical downturn, the aggregate demand is deficient in one of the sectors. Consumers may, consumption is going down, or either investors don't want to invest. Are you saying that you don't believe in that model? And two, if you do believe in that model, what would you suggest we do about it if there is a deficiency in aggregate demand? And this is a little misleading because Keynes did not really say that big government acts as a stimulus. He was really saying that when there's a deficiency in private sector demand, for that matter, net exports, right? Foreign foreign countries demand less of our exports. That government can make up for it. I don't think, and it's been 30 years since I read his book, he really said anywhere that he was a, a proponent of greater government. The idea being that when the economy is expanding, government demand is supposed to go back down to let the private sector take off, not growth in government. Right? And the other part is that why can't at the government demand make up for the shortage of private sector demand if the source of that, and I understand some of the problems in the financing of additional tax cuts for government spending, but if the financing comes from private sector savings that otherwise are not going to be spent, or even foreign sector savings, why wouldn't that be a stimulus or couldn't have a stimulating effect? The first part of your question, do I believe in the model? Right. No. <laughs> the second part of the question, The mistake Keynes made was, and the mistake a lot of people in the 30s made, was the assumption that somehow markets weren't clearing, something wasn't working, and you had to uh, get that curve up there, and that markets by themselves would not do that. 
what was really happening was that markets were clearing at an unacceptably low level because obstacles to production had been introduced. In this particular case, the collapse of the banking system. You can't run a modern economy without a banking system. Japan found that out, and we're finding it out. So it wasn't that markets weren't clearing. It's that something was holding everything back, and it wasn't a deficient aggregate demand. No one could produce, and therefore nobody could pay anybody, sell anything and pay anybody, and then they couldn't turn around and buy their own output. The fallacy is that somehow demand comes first and income comes later. If you can pump up demand, people will get hired and goods will get sold and people will have a higher income. Income equals output. We use the same symbol, a capital Y, in all the undergraduate equations for both. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Say pointed out that supply creates its own demand. If people are producing things that people want and are selling them and getting paid for it, they can all turn around and buy their own output. But you can't have more income without more output first. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you run into the right pocket and left pocket problem, whereas you're simply borrowing the money back from somebody and then giving it back to them with the other hand, unless you start printing money. But if the markets are clearing below what you would like to think of as full employment, if you have shut down part of your capacity because of a regulation or a tax barrier or a banking system collapse, the money itself is not going to fix that. And unless you get that obstacle out of the way, output can't go up, so income can't go up, and you're just doing the, run, the, the musical chairs uh, with the money. And that's what the modern view, I think, is. Uh, Frederick Bastiat was another great French economist. He said you have to be able to see everything that's going on. You can't just look at one little snapshot or little piece of the puzzle. And the, the problem with the Keynesian system was they didn't ask whether the markets were having uh, trouble clearing or, or whether they, in fact, were clearing with, with, a, with something that was holding them back. And, and the Keynesians did not look at where the money was supposed to be coming from for these government spending programs and handouts. You may remember from 30 years ago that people were asking, well, if the government borrows money and spends it, maybe the people who lent the money to the government will look at their treasury bills as wealth, and maybe the increase in wealth will cause them to spend more. But if they were saving and were buying other types of debt and now stop doing that to buy the government debt, you've just rearranged the mix, you haven't changed the total. The best part of your question was what about the foreigners? We have a much bigger inflow and outflow of capital and trade nowadays in the globalized economy than we certainly did in the 30s, particularly after the tariffs. Well, yes, the foreigners can come in and buy some of the debt, but if people were already thinking of buying dollar-denominated dollar assets, why are they going to buy more than they were going to buy a week ago? And do they give up buying the uh, uh, dollar-denominated debt of uh, U.S. Steel and IBM, and do they uh, buy the dollar-denominated debt of the Treasury instead? Have they increased the total? And if they've increased the total, doesn't that strengthen the dollar and make it harder for us to export and increase our imports? One way or another, there's going to be an offsetting demand effect from that. It's just not going to work. You can't play musical chairs with the same level of output that way. You have got to remove the barrier to production that is causing you to have the slowdown. And until you get at the real source of the trouble, you don't fix it. If I can just add something to that, because I certainly agree with what Steve said about the key is increasing national income, not redistributing it. Uh, but I suppose we should be fair. When we're talking about Keynesian economics – uh, we're talking about it in the context of how it's looked at today, not necessarily what Keynes would have said. I mean, you can go back to Keynes and find a lot of quotes that I like. He said that government spending should never exceed 25 percent of GDP. 
well, federal, state, and local in the U.S. were you know, over 35 percent, probably approaching 40, thanks to uh, the Bush years. Uh, Keynes also had great quotes indicating he fully understood the Laffer curve and that higher tax rates can wind up uh, actually losing the government revenue and certainly, in most cases, not collecting nearly as much as the static revenue estimating process would suggest. So, so what Keynes would actually think if he was here today, uh, I, he had a famous quote where somebody asked, well, what if it turns out you're wrong? What will you do? And Keynes said, well, I'll change my mind. What would you have me do? And so I would like to think that if Keynes was up here, uh, he would be just like old Professor Anton and telling us that lots of big government uh, spending isn't the recipe for prosperity. At least not today. I think it was Axel Leon Huford who wrote uh, a book, Keynesian Economics and the Economics of Keynes. And he was pointing out that Keynes was a better economist than his disciples who took his work and twisted it all out of shape. Keynes was a monetarist. Keynes would look at that and go, my God. Another question? Uh, yes, sir, in the back. Uh, a slight dip in the consumer price index or even the wholesale price index, excuse me, the producer price index, you see how old I am, um, uh, because of a decline in oil prices is hardly a generalized deflation. Uh, and, of course, the government does change the way it looks at housing prices in the index every few decades. So I, I'm not sure we're in a deflation. Um, the Fed is desperately trying to make sure that the major portions of the banking system stay up and running, granting credit as usual, clearing checks as usual. Uh, employers need a place to deposit the payroll so they can then write the payroll checks the next day without fearing that the bank is going to shut down overnight. I think that's why the Fed and the Treasury did what they did. I don't think it solves the basic problem of getting the toxic debt out of the way, and I don't think it does anything, as we have the collapse in investment in the housing sector, to promote investment anywhere else in the economy, which you would get if you had an across-the-board cut in some of the taxes on investment somewhere. I would think the other sectors of the economy, many of which are still doing well, could pick up the slack if we weren't about to beat them over the head with a major tax hike. It's worth noting, by the way, that with the trillions of dollars, if you look at some of the estimates that have now been devoted to supposedly helping the economy and stabilizing it and bailing out, uh, that could have financed radical tax reform uh, several times over. Uh, so it's a question about, with all the resources that are being used, are we getting a good bang for the buck? And, of course, some of us would argue that we're actually making things worse by creating so much uncertainty and, uh, and creating moral hazard by subsidizing bad behavior. Uh, yes, sir. Could by manipulating, trying to manipulate the 
economy and manipulate markets and manipulate uh, housing, the housing market and so forth, will we actually have the possibility of prolonging this uh, recession into a decade-long uh, problem like Japan did? And did they, in fact, create a much longer period of uh, weak economy than would have otherwise been the case if the market had been uh, well, first, I would I would say we're not about to launch an experiment because we've been having big government Keynesian policy in many ways for the last eight years under Bush. All that's really happening is we're replacing a big government interventionist borrowing spender with a big government interventionist tax and spender. Uh, so other than the financing mechanism, uh, I fear that advocates of free markets are going to have a miserable next four years or however long, just like we've had a relatively miserable last eight years. Uh, and your point on Japan, I, I think, not only Japan, but also the 1930s, I think it's very clear that government actually made the Great Depression much worse. There's a guy out at UCLA that just did a major study uh, on uh, how the government, with Hoover and Roosevelt's policies, greatly extended what would have been you know, probably a relatively normal recession and made it into a Great Depression. Uh, and this gets back to the point I made at the end of my remarks that government is the source of problems, it's not the solution to problems. Uh, and, and actually, one thing that we'll do is uh, we'll email people. The, I did this video that's up on YouTube about Keynesian economics is wrong, bigger government is not stimulus. And for people on C-SPAN, just go to YouTube and put in the search engine, Keynesian economics is wrong, and you'll find it. And that walks through a lot of the, the same material that was presented in these slides. Uh, but also, for people who want more information, uh, you know, whether it's uh, uh, the study from the guy at UCLA or other sources, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that government has not made things better. So we can never conduct a, a true sort of double-blind experiment. You know, so you can't have a parallel economy and look at what would have happened if you didn't do the 1930s Hoover-Roosevelt big government. Uh, but if over and over again, every time we see Keynesian economics tried, it doesn't work, and if over and over again, every time we see lower marginal tax rates tried and they do work, at some point, even politicians should be able to scratch their heads and say, gee, there's a pattern here. Maybe I should learn something. Uh, question here in the front. Yeah, I'm Craig Olson. I'm retired. I'm retired, so I have more time to think. I believe it was Dr. Mitchell who, who just said a few minutes ago that um, government spending, if you take federal, local, state, and everything, has increased as a, as a proportion of uh, a total GDP from about uh, 25 percent. What, what Keynes would have rolled over in his grave years and implied because it shouldn't go over more than 25 percent, but it's gone up to about 35 or 40 percent uh, currently. Yeah, despite the recessions, despite all the courage that you've shown, over the last 70, 80, 100 years, we've had a period of rapid, you know, fairly rapid and sustained economic growth, despite the recessions. More government spending as a proportion of, of total GDP, more or less sustained economic growth. How do those two go together? How do they fit into your, into your model? Well, there, there's something in the economics profession that's known as Wagner's Law, and that's this paradox that, well, she as why do we see that for instance, some richer countries have bigger governments than some poorer countries. Uh, and what people are missing out on is when did rich countries become rich? And this is often the case when people are looking at countries like Sweden. 
big government, but by global standards, a, a prosperous country. Well, what people forget to look at, and this is, gets the whole idea of Bastiat, the seen and the unseen, uh, is when did Sweden become rich? Sweden became rich throughout the 1800s and the 1900s, back when government was very, very small. Uh, for eight, all through the 1800s, government spending in Sweden was less than 10% of GDP. And even as recently as the 1960s, government spending in Sweden was not really different than the U.S. That was the period when Sweden had its enormous economic growth. And the same thing for the rest of Western Europe. Most of the Western world became rich in the 1800s. What was a common characteristic of Western Europe and the U.S.? No income taxes, very small government. So you can adopt a welfare state once you become rich. I think it's a bad idea. And like Sweden, you then begin to grow slower. Like France, you begin to grow slower. Like the U.S., you begin to grow slower. But at least if you get rich first during a period of free market limited government, you can afford a welfare state. What worries me about a lot of the countries around the world that are coming out of communism or in the third world, or the developing world, is they're trying to adopt the welfare state first, and then they're, some, they're wondering, why aren't we becoming rich? We have the same policies as Sweden. And what I tell them is, look, you should adopt Sweden's policies, but adopt Sweden's policies from 1908, not Sweden's policies from 2008. You have to have your period of free market growth if you want to afford a welfare state. And again, it's still a dumb idea to have that. But let me go ahead and say one thing about where we're heading, because all the new spending we've had under Bush and whatever this 750 or a trillion dollars of new spending we'll have under Obama for stimulus, which won't work, that's actually a drop in the bucket. If you look at the long-term fiscal numbers in America because of the entitlements, we're looking at the federal government going from consuming 22 percent of GDP to consuming about 50 percent of GDP. And by the way, those long-term numbers assume that bigger government's not going to affect the economy's growth rate, when in reality, the economy's growth will go down while government spending's going up. So we are going to wind up being France and Germany in just a couple of decades. And of course, France and Germany will wind up becoming even worse. We, if we want a prosperous country, that is a huge mistake. If you look at the OECD numbers, the U.S. has living standards about 30 percent higher than Western Europe. And so everyone in this room, everyone watching on TV, imagine if your take-home pay was 30% less. That's what it's like to be in a Western European welfare state. I don't want that, and yet that's exactly where America is heading. And all this new spending we've had under Bush and all the spending we've, we're going to get under Obama, that's just a drop in the bucket compared to this tsunami of an of a entitlement cost that we're going to have when the baby boom generation retires. So we may, may as well start training our army to surrender if there's a war, because we will be France. I, I think that, I agree with, with Dan's analysis, but let me point out, I think you're confusing levels and rates of change. Uh, first of all, we did grow, we, we did very, we grew very rapidly in the 1800s with the population influx. We, we grew very rapidly after the Civil War with the advent of modern uh, technology and the building of the steel industries and the transcontinental railroads and the telegraph and all that. We had other waves of development as technological advances uh, boosted us. And I would not be surprised to see that the basic underlying rate of growth of maybe one and a half or two percent from technology might have gone up to a little bit more than that uh, in, in the last century because of, of scientific advances. That's the underlying trend. Uh, but what you have seen repeatedly um, is that, uh, well, suppose, for example, you're starting at the bottom and you're growing at 2% a year, and then science gets to the point where we can now grow at 3% a year, and you're moving three squares instead of two on average each time you roll. 
or you spin the dial. It still can be the case that at some point you do something to knock out uh, five or ten, seven or ten percent of the capital that's been accumulated and put yourself back down two rows. Now you're still growing at the three squares a turn, but you've set yourself back several rows because of the mistake in the tax policy. And the capital stock will, will be growing in the future, but it will never be at the same level as you were at before until you remove the added obstacle you put in the way. And that's what we're talking about. Uh, so uh, it's, 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 what we're doing is poisoning the level that we're starting at, not necessarily the growth rate, but we're certainly poisoning the starting point. And the starting point can be a big, fat chunk of, of where you could be. And throwing away 10 or 15 percent of the potential output by having the wrong kind of tax system and another several percent because of regulations and another 7 percent because of, uh, of misapplied spending, putting the bridge in the wrong place or building uh, a rock and roll museum in, instead of a bridge, uh, which is what government tends to do, uh, can really do a lot of long-term damage. That's what we're talking about. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time today. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, and please uh, join me in thanking our excellent panel today. Thank you.